we are live. This is an unannounced live stream. I'm actually in part doing it to let you know about a live stream that's coming later today. So you're getting two in one day, which isn't often for me. I try to put out, if I can, a video a day, maybe a video every two days. Uh, today, there's going to be two, though, and two live streams. Uh, we have, obviously, the one that you're listening to now, for those who are listening. And then there's one tonight at around 8 p.m., I'm going to be with A.D. Robles and William Wolf, and uh, whoever wants to ask a question or make a comment uh, of the patrons, there's going to be a special link for those who are uh, on Patreon and uh, contribute to this uh, program. I'm just so thankful for you, and I want to give you the opportunity to weigh in on what we're going to be talking about. Well, what are we going to be talking about? There's a lot to be talking about, and some of you are probably a little bit bored. Some of you, not all of you, but some of you are thinking... Can we get back to talking about, I mean, your show is called Conversations That Matter. This doesn't seem to matter that much. And I've, I've put out a few videos uh, last week, and there'll be two, obviously, today on this whole, I don't even know what to call it exactly. I'm, I've been calling it the G3 controversy because I can't remember a previous controversy that related G3. I thought about calling it the Christian nationalist controversy. But I'm not sure it's exactly over that because it's not just Christian nationalism that's been attacked. It's been Christendom. It's been uh, cultural Christianity. It's just a broader net. So um, that's just my placeholder. Right? It doesn't mean that it's the right or wrong name. It's just it's just what I'm calling it. And I, I've tried to emphasize that um, I've reached out. I'm trying to think what else I can do. I'm open to suggestions, by the way. I know William Wolf has reached out. Edie Robles has reached out. Um, Joel Webin has reached out. I've seen him do that publicly to various people within the G3 organization who have made waves on Twitter, especially. And none of us, at least at the time of this recording, based on the conversations I've had over the weekend, have really been able to make any progress. And so um, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, perhaps, unless you've watched the last few videos. Some of you, if you're on Twitter, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, oh, well, someone just put in the comments, looks like Josh Bice and Virgil and Scott are now doing a podcast about Christian nationalism, too. They really I, see. I didn't even know that. Um, it, that's that's the thing. Like we, we probably do need it would be good to have a podcast where all of us and, and it does, I don't have to be part of it. OK, I'm not saying I have to even be part of this, but the people who are advocating, I'm not really one of the most strongest advocates here. I'm, I don't even know if I would consider myself an advocate, except for the fact that some of the attacks are such mischaracterizations or low blows or just they're attacking things other than Christian nationalism. I felt compelled to defend the Christian nationalist side, I suppose. I haven't even taken that label on myself. And I've actually I got a text yesterday from a friend and I've seen a number of these where there are people saying I'm not even that big on Christian nationalism. I don't care about it. Or I, But hey, I'm defending it now, it seems, because of how far these attacks have gone. So um, that's kind of where I'm at. So I don't need to be part of the conversation, but you know, people who actually advocate for it, like William Wolf, he uses the label, he advocates for it, he has a long history now, well, a few years at least, of using this term, from my understanding. Stephen Wolf, obviously, being one of those people. Uh, Andrew Iskar, I think, is another one. Um, there, there's a statement that just came out today, and uh, a number of Baptist brothers, okay, not Presbyterians, but Baptists drafted a statement on Christian nationalism we're going to talk about today. So any of them, I, I suppose, would be good. 
Uh, Dusty Devers is one of them. I think Joel Webbins one of them. And I don't want to leave anyone out. Uh, I don't know everyone who was involved, but I think there are a number of people. And if I'm not mistaken, they were pastors, all of them. Uh, so it, anyway, uh, that'd be great. But uh, it, it doesn't seem to me, and, and I'll, I'll start the, the podcast off, I guess, this way before we jump into the material. It doesn't seem to me like there is much of a willingness to interact slowly, honestly, in a measured way with the material that's already been presented on this subject. Serious material, right? Not, I'm not talking about memes. I'm not talking about uh, CNN's scare quotes, Christian nationalism. I'm talking about people who have tried to use it positively, the, this term. I haven't seen, I don't know if I've seen any meaningful interaction. Actually, I, I hate to say this, but Jonathan Lehman's piece, though I disagree with it and I think it, it had some, it wasn't great. I think it was better. Jonathan Lehman's piece in Nine Marks was better than some of the things I've seen come out of G3. And I just, I'm scratching my head. And I think a lot of us are scratching our heads on this because we, we want to like G3 and we, and there are many speakers that I do like at G3. In fact, Later on this week, uh, likely, we're going to have Bodie Bauckham on this podcast again. I mean, he speaks at G3. I love Bodie Bauckham. Uh, one of my favorite guys to listen to. Uh, on, uh, I don't want to say Big Eva because I, I don't think he's part of Big Eva but or, or Little Eva or whatever Eva. He's just, he's Bodie. He's, he's a missionary. And actually, one of the reasons I respect him, and I, I don't want to go through a, I don't want to bore you guys with a, a long thing on why I, I like Bodie, but one of the, the biggest things to me, and I don't think I've ever told him this, but the fact that he's in Africa and he could have so much guys, you don't even know. I've, I've heard about some of the opportunities that have been granted to Vody Bauckham, not from Vody, from others who have been there in the room have told me this is what has been offered to Vody. And it, it would be a, a rocket ship to success whether he could be in politics in this country as a commentator or really whatever he wanted he could be headlining conferences all the time, and yet he only comes to the United States a few times a year because he's in Africa and he's working to rebuild, well, to to build up Zambia. Not not, and it's not even just um, related to Christianity. Although I'm sure everything ultimately that's the hub, that's the that that's the motivation. But it, it, what I'm trying to say is like it's not all missions work in the strict sense of the the term he's helping people gain vocational skills i mean he, he'd be the logical guy to talk to about a christian nationalism because he's involved in helping this country come along so anyway uh you know Bodhi Bodhi's great and Bodhi's going to be on this podcast so don't take this as a a rejection of everyone who ever speaks at g3 just because i have some questions or some critiques to give on the podcast today my goal is to to provide some clarity because that's what we need the, the water's muddy and I think um, hopefully the statement this morning that came out is going to provide some clarity, but we need more and more clarity can't hurt. So honest questions, honest debate. Uh, I just don't think that the sense is from those who are on the other side of this, who, who actually kind of like Christian culture, cultural Christianity, who like uh, Christendom, who think those are good, positive things. Those people don't feel treated very well right now by the people in G3 who have made the big waves and have written some of the articles. Uh, in fact, I think part of the discouragement is seeing people like James Lindsay, who is an atheist, who uses a lot of foul language, who uh, 
someone I haven't even looked at it yet. Someone just sent me something. People are sending me all kinds of things right now, but someone just sent me something right before I pushed record, a folder on James Lindsay and his, um, I guess, I don't know if it's advocacy is the word or endorsement of homosexual stuff. And, and it's like, yeah, I mean, I, he's an atheist. So why would you not be surprised about that? I would totally not be surprised about that. Um, that's what you would expect from someone who's an atheist. And, and I know some of the, I, I've gotten people before saying, hey, wait, no, James Lindsay's not an atheist or he's he's getting close to Christianity or he said he was an agnostic. Look, he, just like three days ago, it was last week he was on a podcast and he said, I'm an atheist, basically. Uh, so, I, I mean, if, if he wants to change that, I hope he does. I, I hope he comes to repentance. I prayed for him uh, and I continue to pray for him that he would. But the, the point being that he's been platformed by G3 for years. And there hasn't been like a, that I know of, there hasn't been a retraction of that. There hasn't been a need to clarify that. Uh, maybe there is now there hasn't been though for years. And, and, and it's been multiple times. He's been there from my understanding. He's at least been there once. I think he's been there multiple times. And it's, just, I think, I think watching the whole woke split happen because I mean, I was there in real time watching all of that. And I remember being frustrated with some of the guys running conferences like G3, even though there was a statement on social justice and the gospel, um, which and which I signed with some reservations. Uh, I, I, I'm very positive towards it. There there was a reluctance and there still might even be a little bit of a reluctance to call out the other side is promoting false teaching to call them false teachers, to call them maybe even the old term heretic would be a good term for some of these people. I, I never heard that uh, during the time when it mattered. I definitely did not hear it. There were there was low hanging fruit. There was like Russell Moore and Beth Moore, and it was OK to talk about them. But to talk about people in nine marks, to talk about people in Southern Baptist circles and to use language like false teaching it just didn't happen it just didn't happen guys and and so that's okay that's fine that's um a lot of the heavy lifting was left to outlets like pulpit and pen at the time uh protestia now uh, reformation charlotte which i think is now called the dissenter i don't know why all the names keep changing uh capstone report uh myself uh, uh 80 robles uh, i'm even trying to think um Michael O'Fallon at the time, he, he called out a bunch of people on his podcast. Uh, th this is a little bit before William Wolfe and Joel Webin were more involved uh, in those guys. They're, they're more recent. But um, yeah, in those days, I mean, the evangelical dark web, I think, popped up during that time. And they were so, so there was some heavy lifting, but it was and, and this is not an exhaustive list. If I left people out, I'm sorry. And, and it does, not all those people agree with each other, clearly, because right now. Uh, it seems like Michael uh, O'Fallon is, is definitely with the G3 side on this anti-Christian nationalism push. So it's not like even that whole side was, I mean, 80 is a Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. We're, we're not all united on everything. But but there was a basic courage, at least in this one narrow lane, which I thought was obvious, to call out the socialists, the social justice advocates in the church, and especially those who are committing the Galatian heresy by mixing law and grace it, it just was a no-brainer. It was clear to me, and there was there was a. I would just say, I don't want to. I don't know if it was a reluctance. I don't want to question the motivation as much as I do just say that there was certainly in the window in which it counted, it was weak. It was a weak response. So we see that, and then you compare that to now. You compare that to Christian nationalism, which 
is not it's not a huge huge thing now it could i guess become bigger um i heard marjorie taylor green was going to write a book on this or someone was ghostwriting a book for her on this i don't know if that's true i mean it, it's it's been used by the media a lot sure that that term but it's i don't know that like it seems like it's if it if it is a movement that it's one that you could work with it's one that you could have as part of the coalition or if not as part of a coalition at least you could be co-belligerent with you can encourage if it's really younger men that are wanting to get more aggressive in the political sphere for righteousness then i would i would think that you would want to channel that as much as you possibly can and and have communication with those people and influence those people uh not what we're seeing now what we've seen in the last two weeks has been a like I, I just assume i don't know if tsunami is the word it it it, it it seems like it was calculated, like it was planned, coordinated, and it's just a, a aggressive, um, really aggressive uh, opposition to Christian nationalism and Christian, and also those other things I talked about. And it, it's all at once; it's it's all sudden, uh, and it's just we we didn't see like something like that in the woke stuff, and we, and we see in order to even answer the woke stuff to explain it james Lindsay comes in and, and is platformed at g3 so i i'm only bringing this up to explain and if anyone in g3 is listening to this podcast that's my intention is hopefully you hear this and you hear in my voice i want to see peace i want to see uh, working together but this is the sense that people have and this is why i think it, more than the actual issues is the way that we are being treated that's i think that that may even be bigger than some of the issues it, it's this uh it, it's a bunch of people like myself who feel like we've been left behind over a few years we've been rejected by every institution we feel like um in many cases the pastors that we thought we trusted we can't trust we can't of course trust our doctors we can't trust politicians we can't trust so many and we're used to the treatment from big eva quote unquote of being sidelined and being uh, being misrepresented, being talked down to, uh, this elitist mentality. We're used to that. We've, we're, we're uh, some would say we're red-pilled to it. And that all happened before the last two weeks. And I think many are, are looking at this and they're saying, oh my goodness, it's happening again. Again, we're being marginalized. Again, we're not being listened to. Again, uh, we're being treated this way with disdain again that that's i'm just telling you because I, I look i'm getting a lot of messages from a lot of people right now that is the sense i'm getting and if that helps anyone on the other side of this uh then i i sure hope that i sure hope it does i, I sure hope that's being heard now and and maybe there, there there's a way to to form a sort of uh, conversation <laughs> that we can at least start working through these things get down to the root issues so that's going to be uh the point of tonight's live stream. So I don't want to, you know, go and say, say things that I've already said in this podcast, but we're going to have 80 Robles. We're going to have William Wolf and whoever else. Hey, if someone from G3 contacts me in between now and then, if, uh, you know, Scott and Neil, who, who I've emailed on this contacts me, I would be more than happy, uh, any of those guys to, to include them in the podcast tonight. And if anyone listening knows them, be more than happy to. Okay. Um, let's get through to some material here. I didn't even talk about a personal update. I, I will say that for the end. Someone remind me in the chat. I, I do want to let you know about my weekend a little bit. It was a good weekend. 
uh, I was in Nashville. So, um, yeah, I'll, for a concert that was canceled. But anyway, we had a good time anyway. But uh, anyway, I, I do want to talk a little bit about that. I have some observations. Uh, some of it I'm going to save for another podcast on music and culture. And I'll just I'll do this little sneak peek. I think I, I did a video about uh, how I, I think the term nations, uh, biblically speaking, like we don't define it enough. That's one of the dividing lines. I think another thing is culture. We don't define culture either. And often it's treated as if it's one and the same with the world, the world, the flesh, the devil, right? The world, that bad system of corruption. Uh, oftentimes I hear conservative Christians say the world uh, or, or the culture when they mean the world. Culture is actually a good thing. And that's what I want to talk about and talk about the Nashville thing. So maybe we'll save that for the end of, um, or another episode. But um, someone remind me, someone remind me. Okay, uh, let's start here. We're going to go to G3. This is the G3 website. And uh, there's a number of articles here. Where do we want to start? Um, there's three on Christian nationalism. The first is by Nathaniel Jolly. Actually, I think that's the last, but we're starting with it first, April 28th. Nathaniel Jolly. I, I've seen him on Twitter before. When I used to be on Twitter, I'm not sure who he is other than he, he writes for G3. But here's his article, and we're not going to read the whole thing. I've already, uh, I, I've actually read or skimmed all three of these to get the basic gist of them. Uh, it starts off with, there is little debate that America has quickly descended into a pit of moral depravity. Now he goes on about this. And I think this is something for this podcast, for the listeners out there, you all would agree. We would all agree that yes, bad stuff is happening. He says, not even one of the writers of the new Testament though, championed a political movement and anyone familiar with the era understands that they could have instead they championed the gospel. They spoke to public officials. Their focus was on the change of heart, not on policy. And he uses the example of King Agrippa. Uh, Paul, after appealing to Caesar, has the opportunity to speak to Agrippa. And, is, and what happens is astonishing. Paul walks him through the Damascus Road experience and presents him with the gospel. At the end, Agrippa responds, in short time, you will excuse me, persuade me to become a Christian. Okay, so what we already have emerging here is an either or that you you can either pursue political power and political change to try to this is by the way the third use of the law to put an to, to stop evil to to be a a, a, a stopgap between those who would want to do harm to even the church but to families to individuals uh, and you know to put the law there so they they, they don't do those things um, you, you can do that. You should be able to do that. That's, we have a whole, this is one of the things I'll just say this. I get frustrated with is people when they say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about the government or doesn't, it does the focus is the gospel or the focus is the great commission. It's not on building governments. And I have to ask every time this is brought up, what do you do with the old Testament? Like, seriously, what do you do? I think that's often why you'll hear, uh, I, I heard Josh, I, I saw Josh Bice, I think, do this, if I'm not mistaken, on Twitter, where he was, he, he narrowed it to the New Testament, right? So, so where do we see in the New Testament that you need to have a political program of some kind, or a cultural Christian program of some kind? I think it was Owen Strand this morning, he was saying something like that. And, and, I, and I would like to broaden that and say, well, what do you do with the Old Testament? If the law of Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations, as Isaiah says, what does that mean? If it was good for pagan nations, before Christ, what does that mean now after Christ? Does that change? Is there any indication that any of that changed? Is that abrogated? Christ came to fulfill the law, but 
fulfilling the law, that doesn't mean that the law is voided or that the civil laws are somehow not important anymore. And, and by the way, I'm not a theonomist in the traditional sense, in the 1980 sense. I'm not. I have my critique of it because I think it tends towards ideology. And I think um, there's there are cultural elements that can get bypassed or ignored that are also important. But I have a lot in common with those who would argue uh, in a they'll they'll say it's in a theonomic way. And many of you listening, perhaps you consider yourselves that I have a lot in common with you because um, because I, I am willing to say that the moral principles of God's law, as demonstrated in the civic laws, are to be applied in some way. I'm not telling you exactly like I know every way they're supposed to be applied. I just know that if you're trying to find water because you're thirsty, I know where to get the drink. And you you trace it right back to the law, uh, to the character and nature of God. That's the basis for all goodness, for all moral goodness. And uh, and so we can do both. And, and in the New Testament, I would just argue that um, the focus of the, the epistles, the focus of Christ's ministry was not political, but that wasn't meant to be a, a, that, that wasn't meant to be put in the hand of a, a civil magistrate to say, see, only the things in the New Testament can you can you work off of? You can't like um, obviously there there is a role for the civil magistrate to punish evil, uh, to promote good, right? You see that in Romans. Um, we we know we we get these hints of things, but they're how do you define those things? Paul's original audience would have known. The Torah, they would have known God's character already. So we can do both. That's my only point, and I, I could probably say a lot more, but we can do both. We can we can pursue evangelism, saving people, hearts and minds converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can also, at the same time, pursue good laws that are good for everyone because God's law is good for everyone. His moral law is good, right? Um, so, so, so to me, I mean, I don't know if we have to go over... Um, much more of this article. I'm getting texts from listeners, I think, right now. Uh, see, if you have my personal phone number, you don't have to wait in line at the chat. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. So, so the, this comment is about just the gospel. Just the, that's one of the things that, uh, um, I yeah, I do get sometimes a little annoyed with. It, it's absolutely the gospel, but the gospel doesn't take the place of political action. They're two different things. It's the role of the civil magistrate, the role of the church. They're, they're two different ministries. Uh, one's a ministry, uh, well, this is how, how they're discussed by some of the magisterial reformers. One's a ministry of justice. One's a ministry of grace. They have different functions, and that's okay. That's totally fine. Let's just go to the last paragraph here. Uh, when the Christian is already on a campaign and must not be distracted, Christ and him crucified, Come, dear brothers and sisters, let us leave this worldly dribble behind. Leave the pragmatism behind. Leave the powerless things of the world behind. All right, so I, I can't even finish it, I don't think. It's it's just, uh, you have to have just the gospel, I guess. I don't I don't know. Like, like the, if you have a concern, here's the thing. If you have a concern that there's a distraction happening, let's say it's not this issue. Let's say it's something else. Um, you know, let's say that it could even be a good thing. People are distracted from the gospel because they're too busy listening to sermons. I don't think that's a problem anyone I know has, but I'm trying to pick like the best example I can pick. If, if that's like, is it bad to listen to sermons then? No, no, it's good to listen to sermons. Uh, it's just that you might be spending too much time listening to sermons or too much effort listening to sermons when the Lord also expects you to pray. He also expects you to, to uh, fast and to, um, 
read the word and there are other spiritual disciplines. That's the point. So we can have a balanced life where we can do all these things and we can be a political, um, a, we, we can be a public witness in the political sphere. And, and one of the ways uh, to at least do the pre-evangelism work is to support the law of God, to hold it up as a high standard that people can't keep, uh, to punish offenses that are against God's good law. Because if you do that, you're reinforcing his standard. You're, you're, you're helping people see that they're in violation of a standard, not just God's standard, but uh, God's standard being then echoed by man, man's institutions. And without those things, then you start to lose that standard. You start to lose that sense of moral integrity that we should all achieve and shoot for. So we can do both. That's, that's my encouragement. And, and forming these dichotomies isn't very helpful. Uh, so I, this and this also, I think, speaks past the it doesn't really have any relevance. I don't think, at least from my perspective, I'm curious to see if anyone disagrees with me on this. But I don't know that that has a big uh, relevance to the discussion on Christian nationalism, because I don't hear any of the Christian nationalist guys saying you shouldn't evangelize. In fact, many of them say you should and do. So I, I don't see that if they were saying that, then I would be with you know Nathaniel Jolly here and say, look, if you're saying it's only political and that's the only way that we can achieve uh, any any kind of victory or something like that, then, man, you, you got your priorities off. You, you know, you need to you need to pursue the spiritual victory, which is in Christ. But you also need to pursue earthly good, which is loving your neighbor by letting Christ's law uh, be implemented in, in the best way it can. Um, and sometimes prudence is going to dictate like like I'll give you an example of this. Prudence might dictate in the community I live in now, which is. Like, I don't know how you do Christian anything. You have to be salt and light in this community. We need more people converted before we can do much where I am. That might not be true in rural Alabama, but where I am, that is the, that is the way it is. The, the, because uh, there has been, there's so much secularism and Christianity has been so discarded. Even Catholicism has been so discarded. People don't even have a Christian ethic anymore. They don't have a frame of reference. So it's, they don't, when they don't know who Jesus is, or they've never, uh, I, I ran into this at the Culinary Institute last year when I was uh, doing some ministry work over there. And I asked the students, I said, uh, do people associate Christmas with Jesus here? And, and I was assuming that they did, but I was seeing the looks on people's faces and I just stopped my talk and I said, wait a minute, do, do people here, can you use this as an evangelism opportunity? And they said, no, they don't even, some people don't even know who that is. I thought, oh my goodness, except that's a curse word maybe. So what do you do in a community like this? Well, I don't think the first thing is once you get elected to be the mayor <laughs> or the town councilman or the you know, attorney or whatever, district attorney, you, you don't say, you know, what we ought to do. We ought to have a Sabbatarian law. Now, I'm not saying Sabbatarian laws are necessarily bad. You know, even Thomas Jefferson, who people love to quote as being for religious freedom, he was the one who wrote the, that that particular law for Virginia helped write it. I, I'm not, I don't have a huge problem with that. I actually think maybe blue laws can be a good thing. Some would say it's legalism that we can have that conversation. I'm, I'm not, I'm not huge on it either way, but I, I think that we have a legacy and yeah. Okay. You couldn't implement it where I am. Probably it just, it, you couldn't, it's not even a probably you just couldn't. And then that's a prudence thing. It, it doesn't mean you throw out the goals. It doesn't like, so, you know, should banning pornography be the first thing on the agenda? When there's babies getting killed, right? Th these are the kind of questions that pr where prudence comes in. It's like, well, banning pornography 
that is an important thing. We need to rid ourselves of this, but, and they're connected. They certainly are, but we may have something that is more winnable and also more important. And so th this is where prudence comes in. That's different than principle. Okay. So there's prudence, there's principle. And with this article, I don't think it gets down to anything principled uh, in this. Maybe you'll say prudential, but I don't think that there's much principled here. All right. Well, let's, uh, before we get to the next one, uh, let's just see some of the comments that are, because there's a lot of comments coming in. I'm actually surprised how many people are streaming right now and I didn't announce this. So welcome everyone. Um, uh, I haven't read all of these yet, but there, there are a few questions. Um, let's see. <laughs> say no to nationalism. Yeah. Well, if, if, if what you mean by nationalism is um, a, a totalitarian state similar to, you know, fascism in Italy or uh, some kind of um, really communist regime regimes end up being nationalist in a sense. If what you're talking about is that, then I'm in agreement with you. Um, in fact, that's for a separate podcast. I need to talk about this. Someone remind me uh, if I don't get to it within this week. Uh, we do need to talk about Nazism because it is being used quite a bit. You're going to see it even used in the next article we're going to go over to kind of besmirch Christian nationalism. And, and it's it's a little silly to me. One of the critiques Roger Scruton has about um, fascism or Nazism is that it makes blood and soil or, uh, you know, whatever pe people, ethnicity, it makes these things into an ideology and it parallels them or associates them with the state. So the state this all powerful, totalitarian, godlike almost state, the collective manifestation of the people. It ends up being one and the same with the Volk or the 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 blood and soil or whatever. It doesn't mean that there's nothing to uh, having a, an actual tangible people or having a place in which they inhabit. That's that's not that generally has not been the conservative critique. The conservative critique is making it into an ideology, uh, bringing big government in, making it totalitarian. Like it's a, like the state is somehow synonymous with the people. These are the destructive things that generally conservatives have said are problems. Now, though, something's changing and it's been changing for a few years, but I, you're going to see it, I think, somewhat in this next article by Virgil Walker. We're going to read if you talk about any importance to the, uh, of their being for for people, uh, a tangible people and then a place that they inhabit. If you start talking about that, you can end up being a. A, a, a proto-Nazi or something, or you're you're leading in that direction. That is, I think, relatively new, at least in, in conser political conservative circles. That's been in the left forever. The left has always thought that, uh, well, since World War II, that uh, th that there's Nazism somewhere, a latent form of it, about to pop up on the right, and that Nazism is uh, rooted. It, it, it basically reduces to things that we would consider up until recently to be just patriotism, you know, loving your country. It's the F scale. It's a door F scale. It's, it's, uh, you know, submission to parental authority. It makes you a fascist. Uh, loving your country makes you a fascist. Uh, spanking your kids makes you a fascist, right? Like all these things that you were like, what, how, how does that have to do with any of it? But they have a very low bar for what it takes to be a Nazi or, or the dangers of Nazism. Conservatives have had, a, I think, a more accurate bar. Um, until recently. So I don't know why that comment got me onto that, but uh, someone says, Sovereign Nations has platform James Lindsay, not G3. Okay, 
He may have attended a pre-conference the year before the state. Um, I do know that uh, James Lindsay was on uh, or still on. I'm not sure. Uh, he definitely was on, though, the G3 website. So whether or not, you know, what organization did what, um, James Lindsay was, was I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm certain about this one. Uh, if someone wants to, maybe someone should send me the link because I know it's up there. I don't have time to look for it right now. Um, but yeah, it was definitely either attached to the G3 conference uh, and and I know on the website did feature something from James Lindsay. Okay, um, <laughs> what's your opinion of Tom Buck demanding that Christian nationalists denounce a fringe racist account? Yeah, I think we're going to save that for tonight, uh, if, if possible, if we have time, because AD was the one that was tagged in that, and I'll let AD speak to that. Um, I'm not too positive about it, I'll be honest with you. And um, I don't know, I don't want to say anything more. I, I, I That's the kind of treatment that I've expected more from uh, the social justice side. And I, I think I want to get into the mechanics of it and why I think that stuff is destructive, um, even if well-intentioned. Okay, um, what else can we, there's a lot of other comments, but we need to get to the next article. So let's do that. We are going to talk about, let's do the one from uh, Virgil Walker next. Uh, the dangerous intersection of Christian nationalism and ethnocentrism. Now, this one, I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but we'll, we'll spend a little bit longer than the other one. Um, it starts off with, if what is meant by Christian nationalism today is a form of active patriotism in which borders are protected, national sovereignty is enforced, and society moves back towards the Judeo-Christian ethic, call me a Christian nationalist. However, a few have, have studied the European nationalist movement. Fewer still understand that leaders of this new movement are giving it a makeover. This improvement is an attempt to rebuild something that was actually broken and required additional inspection. Now, I do know a little bit about this. I wouldn't say I'm an expert at all. I, do, I know a little bit about it, um, just from not, not from even personal study, just more academic study. I've, I had to, had to read a lot about Nazis because I had a World War II and a Holocaust class and their thinking and their ideology. And I've done a lot of study on my own um, about that. And, um, and, and I'll be honest with you, I'm concerned that we, there's parallels today, but I don't see it as much in Christian nationalism, believe it or not. I see it more on the woke social justice side of things. Uh, some of the, some of the, the parallels that I consider to be, um, the most dangerous, but, um, but, but, you know, let, let's just, let, let's say this from the beginning. Look, we can say this about Nathaniel Jolly's piece. Look, we're, we're, we have a, a commonly shared interest in spreading the gospel and we don't want that to be sidelined okay so so let's build some common ground here with this i can say with this first sentence here with virgil hey uh i agree with all that i don't know if i'd say judeo-christian as much as just a, a christian ethic but um but sure yeah uh i can get behind that and, and and i think maybe we have room to build there now let's see where virgil though let's let's see where he's got a an issue uh with stephen wolf um he says in the book stephen wolf writes that he endeavors to position his form of Christian nationalism as nationalism modified by Christianity. My definition of Christian nationalism is a Christianized form of nationalism, or put differently, a species of nationalism. Thus, I treat nationalism as a genus, meaning that all uh, that is essential to generic nationalism is true of Christian nationalism. Now, this is a kind of language I know many of you, you, you start going to sleep and you think this is all theoretical. And Steve, and you need, for any movement, you need your theorists. Stephen's the theory guy. He's the guy that's giving you the abstract concepts. He's uh, delineating things. He's trying to, to this is where the, the artists and then the activists and whoever else in any movement, 
or, or those who are promoters, I don't know if I want to say activists, but the promoters, that's, they, they draw from the theorists and they distill it. And, and if you um, saw what I did the other day with my post on being in a coffee shop in Tennessee that was playing Christian music that had Christian symbolism, and I contrasted that with New York and how there's pride flags and it's raunchy, I, I was... I was delineating. I I was taking not not drawing directly from Stephen, but I was, but I'm drawing from from theory or from uh, not not theory. I don't want to say it that way. I'm drawing from principle. I'm drawing from I'm I'm using my observations to apply uh, principles that I believe really in, in that situation, and that is more understandable to people. If you put it in a painting or a song, it's very understandable to people. And that's part of the, the difficulty and the disconnect. So I, I acknowledge that, by the way, because people have critiqued that. That's not a defect with Stephen. It's just there aren't enough people that are making the the common. Well, until now, maybe with the statement on Christian nationalism. But there, there haven't been many people um, saying things very plainly about this, at least in published forms. So um, just wanted to comment on the language. Nothing to do with Virgil, uh, but Virgil quoted this. And then he says, Wolf's statement raises several questions. Can nationalism be Christianized? Um, he goes on uh, about ethnicity. He quotes Stephen. I use the term ethnicity and nation almost anonymously, though I use the former to emphasize the particular features that distinguish one people group from another. Nation is used to emphasize the unity of the whole, though no nation, properly speaking, is composed of two, <clears throat> excuse me, two or more ethnicities. If Wolf's vision proceeds, and no nation, properly speaking, is composed of two or more ethnicities. What becomes of the multi-ethnic American experiment? I think this is the crux of a lot of it. What becomes of the American experiment? Now, here's the one of the one question that I think needs to be asked in this whole thing. What is America? I mean, seriously, what is America? Is America a federal republic? Is it an empire? Is it a nation? What is it? We, I think, are used to reciting one nation under God, which is why many people think of it as a nation. But that's fairly new. That's that the founders, you know, I, I think some of them did refer to it as a nation, but that, that wasn't necessarily the word that you heard most commonly. In fact, during the time of the, the founding, uh, people had more of an allegiance to their states than they did the central authority. And that's why I think it's a federal republic. It's supposed to be at least, but it's a federal republic that has become an empire. And if you think about the Roman Empire or the Ottoman Empire or the Russian Federation or the USSR, I suppose, you are looking at empires that were composed of multiple nations, not just one, multiple ethnicities in Stephen's uh, use of the word here, not just one. Is America that? That is a question that needs to be answered. And that's a very hard conversation to have because it is so often assumed that America is a nation. I think it's 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 probably not. <laughs> I think that we probably have, um, going even back to David Hackett Fisher's book, Albion Seed, we have a number of different nations that have formed. And, and even since that time, we've had immigrants that have come to different areas and they've formed through through and this is how nations really do form through time and built trust and traditions and customs and all of that uh we we have regions that i think approximate nations but to say that america is a nation what while you if you want to use that terminology okay technically i don't know that that's actually correct so that might be one of 
the dividing lines here. And, and where Stephen comes down on this, I'm not exactly sure. And I might, if Stephen thinks America itself is a nation, is, um, is one people in the sense that they're all part of the same ethnicity and the same, which, which should I guess imply in his, this is where things get, their tension arises, because if, if you want to say that nations have common languages, well, that doesn't even apply to America anymore. Common religions, that certainly doesn't. You, do you see what they're doing up there in, is it uh, Wisconsin? No, no, uh, Minnesota. Uh, I think it's St. Paul. They're, they're allowing the Muslim call to prayer at all hours of the morning. Um, what, is that Muslim nationalism? What is that? Is that Muslim localism? What do you call that? Whatever that is, it means that those who live in a town that hear only church bells are sharing a government with those in St. Paul who are hearing a Muslim call to prayer. Those people are living in the same place. They have different everything, even different cuisine. So what, are they part of the same nation? See, this is this is the conversation that actually I think need to be happening. And if, if Stephen thinks that, um, that that those two people are part of the same ethnicity or something, I might have uh, a, a disagreement with him on that. But but I don't think that's the point of Stephen's book, really. And, and that's why I don't think this is I don't know how relevant this actually is, because the, the point of his book is more that Christians can use power. It's it's not a bad thing for Christians to use political power for the advancement of righteousness. If you really want to boil it all down, what he's trying to say is that now you can get, you can quibble about first uh, table of the law, both tables of the law. So specifically, which laws need to be applied and stuff. But but that's the principle he's arguing for. That's the main gist of it. And he's saying something about nations that's true. It's like nations are there are tangible people. They're they're not just these abstractions. They're not. It's not just an idea. Then that's totally true. And if we could just, I think that's why in the United States, the people who want to say it's a nation have are forced because of the differences I just outlined. To say, well, we all share this idea of freedom or equality, and so that makes us one people. But, but then you, you know, you could be one people with those in Iraq, I guess, if they shared your vision of equality or something, right? Like, why can't they just be Americans too, right? Or, and if you, I guess, were born here and spoke English and, and all the customs that would have been here from the inception of the country, but you don't share the vision of equality, are you not an American? You see how this works. That's why we, we got to just dump the proposition nation idea, I think. And then we can probably have better discussions of this. But but I think Virgil here um, saying proponents of this version of Christian nationalism will need to determine which or sorry, that's not the quote I was looking for. Oh, I missed it. It was the one I read before. Um, OK. OK, so here I think this is this it. The challenge with Wolf's ideas as they relate to ethnicity is that at different points in his writings. He, OK, that's not it either. I just read it. Um, well, it's, it's, I'm going to summarize. It's where he says, uh, how is that going to work in our context? How, how does that work in America, basically? And I think that gets to the heart of a lot of it. I don't know why it's, I, I'm, I think it's right in front of me and I can't see it for some reason now. Okay. So, um, so his problem is Stephen presenting an ethnically homogenous picture of Christian nationalism. And if you look in the book though, Stephen defines ethnicity and it's, it's not genetic determinism. But um, he, he says, uh, is Christian nationalism white wokeism? So there's two themes here. And he'll weave them together, I think, at the end. But first theme is basically is Stephen being restrictive here. And 
only including quote unquote white people in his conception of Christian nationalism. And the second thing here is that uh, this could make the way for big government. It could overhaul the constitution. And I, I should check the title. No, it doesn't. It says the dangerous intersection of Christian nationalism and, and ethnocentrism. That's an interesting title because I, I I thought it was more broad, but it looks like Virgil is only critiquing Stephen's version of this. So I'm going to assume that this is only against Stephen, and this isn't a broad all Christian nationalists or people who use that term are like this. I don't know. Um, but anyway, he asked the question: Is it white wokeism? Uh, he says, let's see, that. White here, here it is. White Christian nationalism and social justice share commonalities. Christian nationalism is not white wokeism. It is, however, a response to wokeness. Many Christian nationalism proponents have rightly been concerned. Uh, okay, so so he's at least he's saying it's not that, but he says, um, okay, many would contend that the struggle for social justice and the propagation of Christian nationalism share no similarities. I disagree. Both are responses to feelings of subjugation and powerlessness. Now, now stop right there. Is any response to subjugation and powerlessness wokeism? No, it's not. And he says later, it's not. This isn't technically wokeism, so good. But, but just that commonality that doesn't necessarily mean that, in and of itself, the wokeness isn't doesn't boil down to just that. Because um, some people are subjected and some people are powerless. The problem with wokeism is that. They're, they have a broken meter for detecting that stuff. They're saying, oh, it's, you're benefiting from a system that allocates privilege to you because you're white. Therefore, you're oppressing these other people and we should take your money. And that, that's, that's what wokeism does, right? So their, their meter for detecting oppression is totally flawed. So the problem is it's a lie. It's not that oppression doesn't exist or that people aren't subjected. It's that the areas in which they're trying to find it um, they either don't exist or they're using an improper metric to figure out if it exists. Each seeks a top-down government-facilitated remedy for their concerns. Well, uh, I'd say wokeness, wokeness does. Um, wokeness, though, is fine with corporate. We just talked to Paul Godfrey about this recently. Wokeness is mostly being enforced by corporate interests more than it is the government. They're both doing it. But it's it's not it's totalitarian. We'll say that it is totalitarian. Now, Christian nationalism, ideally, now I don't see this in Stephen's book. I do see that he he has this role for the. How can you say that, John? Because he has this role for the Christian prince potentially. Um, but Stephen, if you if you talk to him about it and you see hints of this in the book, he very much respects. I think what the founders were trying to do, and he sees that as um, and he cites the Puritans a whole lot in that book. He he looks at early America as an example of what he'd like to get back to in a modern context. So um, th there are several distinctions, I think, that have to be made here in order for there to be clarity. And if we make assumptions, and I think Virgil does, then it's easy to either talk past each other or misrepresent the other side. So. Um, each seeks a top-down government facilitate a remedy for their concerns. Well, how so? Both are willing to cede authority to the government for the benefit of their respective peoples. I mean, what is government? Government, by definition, government is a collective effort that it, well, a, a, it's collective action. Um, in our in our context, at least in a republic, it is. 
even if it's not a republic, though, if it's a, if, if if you have a king or something, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of the other forms of government, an oligarchy, you know, all the different forms. It's for, according to God, no matter what form, it is for the good of the people to whom that government serves. They're supposed to benefit those people by punishing good, promoting, promoting good, rather. It seems that way today, doesn't it? Punishing evil, promoting good. So I don't know, like that, that's what government is. Now, um, he goes on, and this is where I think it, it gets more specific. Both parties recognize that constitutional power, such as the First Amendment, must be constrained to advance their cause. Now, here's the thing about this. This is what I wanted to say. During the time of the adoption of the Constitution, 1780s, 1790s, that whole period and before that and even after that, to a large extent, there were blasphemy laws on the books in several places. Um, Washington's army had blasphemy laws. Nine of the 13 colonies had official state religions. Um, Pornography was illegal up until the 70s, maybe even past that. Um, I need a lawyer to tell me what what cases were the ones that finally got that all struck down. But uh, I mean, within the lifetime of many people listening to this podcast, pornography was illegal in many regions. Guess what? All of the things I just mentioned were enforced at the state and local level. The Constitution, if it is a federal republic, if, if that's what we are, it was a basic agreement on between these sovereign parties on how to provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, which really meant regulating trade, treaties, very limited, very regulated, uh, very um, different than the government that we have today. That was the intention, at least, right? So when you have a Bill of Rights that is telling uh, the government, in this case, only the national or general government, probably better term would be general than national. It's only telling the general government what it cannot do. You cannot go and take people's guns away. That shall not be infringed. It's not saying that about local state. And I know this is hard for some people because we have, we, we, there's a doctrine now that, and it's been this in precedent for a while, but um, we have incorporation. And because we have incorporation now, we apply the Bill of Rights to the states, to local municipalities, and the civil rights legislation and um, the Reconstruction Amendments went a long way to inventing and then promoting this. But it wasn't always this way, and, and that wasn't the intention. So if someone today has a vision to get back to something earlier, and I don't want to put words in Stephen's mouth, but I'm pretty sure he would he, he would agree with this. Um, if someone wanted to implement some, let's say, banned pornography on the state level, that's not limiting freedom of speech, okay? They can do that and say, well, I just reject incorporation. That's at least one way to do it. So um, that doesn't, I'm I'm just saying it doesn't mean that you would throw out the First Amendment. It's not throwing out the First Amendment uh, to do that kind of thing. I know there's probably a lot of people who disagree with me on this, which is fine. But but look, I I try to be an originalist as much as I can with these things. uh, And um, I just think that's worth noting. Um, all right, we'll, we'll finish this up in a second. Just want to take a break to see 
uh, what comments are coming in. Still a lot of comments coming in. We need a national divorce. <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah. Well, you're not the only one saying that right now, Lance. There's a lot of people uh, saying that. Tony Brown says nations have borders. It would seem that way. It would seem even if they don't have walls, they definitely have borders. Um, biblically speaking, I mean, do we have any concept of a nation that doesn't inhabit a region? Even in Acts chapter 17, God uh, establishes the boundaries, it says. Uh, nationism and nationalism are not the same things. You know, I'm, I'm, you, you probably have a point to be made, but, uh, I'll be honest with all the terms flying around and the hard time we're having defining them. I don't know if I want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, okay. I don't, some of these comments I'm, I'm not understanding. So let's just, uh, let's continue this. We are more than halfway done. Uh, I think with what we're going to talk about in this article, uh, defining terms. Okay. Virgil Walker says Stephen Wolf's Christian nationalism while embracing aspects of ethno nationalism, which I will address later defines Christian nationalism as a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to produce for itself, both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. It sounds technical guys. What he's saying though, is that the, the mores, so meaning the custody, the uh, the manners, the traditions, the, the public displays of religion, etc., and the, the laws, meaning what's enforceable, uh, can be influenced by Christianity, and and you can have a Christian nation based off of that. That's what I'm. That's what he means. He doesn't mean everyone's converted. That's what he means, and that this uh, produces earthly and heavenly good, both. So that there's a internal ramifications for this, and I'd already talked about this, the first use of the law uh, and the third use, um, but the first use particularly here, bringing about the knowledge of sin, and uh, there's earthly good. Uh, you, you have smooth sailing. You have people that honor contracts, so trust is built, so the, the market economy is better, and uh, people are protected from crime and, and all of that. that. That way they can actually pursue going to church, right? John MacArthur said something. I remember this was back in... Uh, 2016, no, 2011, 2011. He said, you know, the only thing I expect the government to do is to keep me from getting shot at when I go to church and, and to keep the water on. Now, I don't know about the water thing, but at least the keeping him shot at when he goes to church, that is a function of the government. That is, that's a, that's a righteous function of the government. That's a good thing. That's all, that, that's what Stephen's talking about here. While the definition is something which uh, most would agree, a closer reading of Wolf's work would explain one of the roles of the civil magistrate as it punishes evil. Uh, the question is whether a, a Christian magistrate having civil rule over a civil society of Christians may punish with civil power false teachers, heretics, blasphemers, and idolaters for their external expressions of such things in order to prevent any injury to the souls of the people of God, the subversion of Christian government, Christian culture or spiritual discipline or civil disruption or unrest. Modern religious liberty advocates deny this and I affirm it. The question that must be asked, Virgil Walker writes, who defines who is and is not a false teacher, a heretic or a blasphemer? Will the Presbyterians decide? Will the Baptists decide? Well, we had this, we, we hashed this out at the, at the founding of this very uh, arrangement that we're in right now. Um, you had certain colonies that were controlled by congregationalists, by um, by Baptists, by well, by that I was going to say by Quakers, but by that time, really not. It wasn't Quakers, by Anglicans or Episcopalians. So, um, so this has already been discussed. Uh, Maryland was was very influenced by Catholicism. 
So what will be done with Mormons, Catholics, or Muslims in a Christian nation if we have... So again, he's assuming, the, the whole time he's assuming, and, and I don't know that, I'm not saying it's a bad assumption, but he's assuming that the, the America itself is a nation. And that I would argue that um, Steve, the, the image on the front of Stephen's book leads you to think that. Um, but Stephen may be for this, and I, and I know I, speaking for myself, I can see an arrangement where if it's a, a, a looser form of government, it's a, uh, it, it's a federal republic, you can have these, different, these differences. In fact, I have it sitting here somewhere. I haven't, uh, maybe I have it somewhere else, but, it, but Doug Wilson just wrote a book called Mere Christendom, and I think that's the argument he's making in it is basically what I just articulated, which was really what we had at the beginning of this country. Uh, Puritans kicked out Roger Williams, right? So he had to go to Rhode Island. And then, and when he, you bet when he started his, the colony in Rhode Island, it was Baptist. <laughs> it was, it was a Baptist colony. So we've gotten away from this and this bland kind of secularism, but, uh, but that it, things were not always that way. And so if you make the distinction between local state, national, or general, which is what I'm, I'm, I'm doing that more often, but if you want to say national, that's fine. Um, but as long as, as long as whether, no matter what word you, you use, you're keeping these concepts separate, then you maybe we can find some common ground here. I don't know. I don't know if Virgil Walker though, would be okay with like, okay, Utah, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's Mormons. And, and, and here's the thing. If Mormons control Utah, cause that's the majority of the population. What does that mean for the Christians living there? I'll tell you what it means. It means you witness. <laughs> it means you try to change things, but, uh, you're not in a position of being able to do anything uh, politically to change it from being Mormon if the, the vast majority is Mormon. Um, and and they're not just the vast majority being Mormon, but they're also, they want to keep it Mormon. You, you have to change their hearts and their minds. And so that's that's where evangel evangelism has to happen, right? But if you lived in, let's say, um, Oklahoma, uh, which the vice governor, I think it was, recently uh, dedicated the state to God. And, uh, I remember there were Christians going nuts about this. What about the Muslims who live there? What about, well, you know, actually he dedicated it to Jesus Christ. It wasn't just God. It was Jesus Christ. And that was a wonderful thing. You know, that's, that's what we would want for all 50 States, all of them. Right. But can we provide for the common defense and the general welfare while having separate governments that look different in different states. I think that's what it was supposed to be from the beginning. I know I, maybe I'm the dinosaur here. I don't know. But I, I have a feeling that I am talking about things that are now being rediscovered somewhat. And younger people, especially conservatives who are Zoomers, they're starting to see things differently. They don't they, they, they aren't looking at the United States as one nation as much. Uh, indivisible. They are they are saying, well, you know, what do I have in common with someone in San Francisco if they live in Alabama, right? They're they're thinking through these things, and the national divorce language, I think, is is becoming more and more prevalent. And um and and hopefully that leads us back to an idea of a limited federal republic and self government. That'd be great. But if not, then um we're probably gonna. I mean, I'm just saying realistically, we're probably gonna have an option between. Some kind of a left, uh, a left wing totalitarianism, and some figure on the right who who says, you know what, I'm going to bring things back to normal, uh, like a Francisco Franco kind of thing. That that may be what ends up happening. Uh, things things are just being centralized everywhere. But the hope is the goal in, in my mind. What I'd love to see 
is us to get back to a federal republic. Wolf's version of nationalism maintains consistency with the kind, here it is, kind of German Volkism that paved the way for ethnic German nationalism. I don't know. I mean, not, we're talking Nazism. Let's not mince words here. While proponents may balk at the comparison, Wolf embraces the idea when he writes, blood relations matter for your ethnicity because your kin have belonged to this people on this land, in this nation, in this place, and they bind you to that people in place, create, creating a common Volkgeist. Now, <laughs> using a German word there, you know, Stephen, I think Stephen knew he might have been ruffling some feathers. It's not a bad word, but uh, but but because of the knee jerk reaction to anything German and, and being associated, especially the word bulk with Nazis, um, you can see how this connection, how, how people would see this as uh, attempting to make this connection. My question is, and this just came to my mind, um, would Virgil say this, though, about George Washington? And I'm going to look it up right now because I don't have the actual words in front of me. Uh, George Washington's farewell address. I'm going to look up the farewell address real quick. 1796. And, um, okay. I think I'm founding the section. Let's see. All right, here it is. Let me see if I can uh, pull it up for you so you can see what I'm looking at. And this is the question that I would have. Is George Washington, I hope not, but is George Washington... A Nazi. I'll look for the right word here. Okay. Here's the section I'm thinking of. For this, you have every. Let's let's uh, go back one sentence here, so people know what we're talking about. Uh, George Washington had a lot of run-on sentences. I, I feel like this this whole thing is like one sentence. But as it is easy to foresee that from different causes and from different quarters, much pains will be taken, many artifices employed to weaken in your minds the conviction of this truth, as this is the point in your political fortress against which the batteries of internal and external enemies will be most constantly and actively, though often covertly and insidious, insidiously directed. And he's talking about uh, the edifice of your real independence, the support of your tranquility at home, your peace abroad and your safety. Uh, the very liberty which you so prize, um, which is the unity of the government, uh, which constitutes you one people. Okay, so he's saying, it, let me just translate. You're one people. You're one people. Okay, now, Washington was more of a nationalist. Okay, this Jefferson probably didn't see things these, this way, and I would have probably been a little more with Jefferson. Um, Washington was very influenced, especially by the end of his life, by Alexander Hamilton. But, but what he's saying here is that you're one people. Now, how is he going to argue for that? He's going to say it's a proposition. No, because Lincoln hadn't come around yet and said that. So what's Washington going to say? What's he going to base this on is the question. Uh, and, he's, and he's saying this is important for survival. Like you, you need to remember that you're one people. If you don't, then you, you know, you're going to be done. And that's true. If you don't have a glue that connects you, think about that on a family level. If you don't act like you're part of the same family, you don't say, well, we may have the same, live in the same house, have the same... You know, genetics have the same uh, people providing for us, whatever. But you know what? I'm I'm not going to be in this family, right? I'm not part of this. Like you bet, you're going to have problems. Um, so he's saying on on a larger level the same thing. For this, you have every inducement and sympathy of interest. Citizens by birth or choice of a common country. Now, at the time he's writing this, remember, remember the Constitution is for um, 
we the people for ourselves and our posterity. So it's us here and those who are going to be birthed or to, to in, in our lineage, ourselves, our posterity. That's what that would have meant at the time. It's to a specific group. It's an, and it's a document that is binding on future generations. It is uh, a uh, a intergenerational agreement that takes place within one specific group of people. And, and so at the time he's doing that, he's saying this though, um, th this is uh, the country, the, the, the country is not new in the sense that people have been here for a while, but the constitution is relatively new. I mean, it's within the, their lifetimes. Citizens by birth or choice of a common country. So they just had, remember the context, England, they were citizens of England, and now they're citizens of the United States. So um, there were there are people, there were Tories who went back to England during this time or escaped to Canada. And there were those who had to, you know, they might have been with England, but they said, you know what, this is where we are now. We're going to have to get used to the new normal. Kind of like people right now in the uh, eastern parts of Ukraine that are controlled by Russia now. They either have to go to, to flee to Ukraine, although most of them, from what I've seen, most of them are just staying there. Um, the, the fleeing's going in both directions. I think it's more though, well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to jump on that landmine right now, but you, you would have to make a decision at, at that point. W what country, what jurisdiction do I want to be under? So similar scenario in a way, citizens by birth or choice of a common country, that country has a right to concentrate your affections. Oh man, that sounds bigoted today. The country has a right. The, the that's the, 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 uh, uh, the everyone, the, the body politic has a right to concentrate. The collective has a right to concentrate your affections. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations with slight shades of difference. You have. So, so here's the here's the thing. Slight shades of difference. You have Catholics in Maryland, you have Congregationalists in Massachusetts, you have Anglicans in Virginia, right? Slight shades of difference. You have, though, the same religion. Does that mean that they're all born again? No, it's not what he means. They're all Christian. They're part of Christendom. You have the same religion, same manners, habits, and political principles. Now, I don't know if that, this was even true when he wrote this. There was already people predicting it's going to split, guys. It's going to split. It's too different. Uh, these regions are too different. But this is this is Washington's dream. This is the nationalist dream from that time, right? You have in a uh, a common cause fought and triumphed together. So so you have a commonly shared experience here. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. Okay, so that's all I wanted to read. Um, but he goes on, I should say this, the North in its unrestrained intercourse with the South, protected by the equal laws of the common government. So he's already trying to, and he's saying the East and the West, he's already seeing that there's differences and how do we keep this together? Well, it's arousing. This is, this is remember your one people. And it's, it's those things that make you different. There's slight shades of difference because you have all these same things, same religion, same manners, same habits, same political principles. Um, and, and by birth or choice. Uh, you, you're American. So, so, so anyway, th this is w w the question I have is just would, would George Washington would be, would he be paving the way if he were to come around today, 2023 and stay the same thing he did back then? 
would he be paving the way for some kind of Nazism or something? Or, or is that just, you know, nationalist American thought from that time? And, and that's permissible today. Um, there's, there certainly is a connection to posterity because you read the constitution, but even Washington talks about it there. Uh, how do you become become something by birth, right? It's something you grow up in. It's something it's organic, is what I'm trying to say. It's not just this abstract thing that's forced. It's organic, and that's what that's how people how you designate a people. Um, it, it's like this: if if you asked me to say, uh, to you asked me what is an American or what is a Southerner, we'll get regional here. What's a Southerner? I say, well, Southerners. Let's see. Um, I don't know. They they have an accent. Well, does every Southerner have an accent? Well, I guess not. Not. I mean, everyone has an accent, but not every Southerner has the same accent. And they don't all even. So some of them are influenced by the media, and so they're not. They have a flatter accent. Okay. Well, Southerners. Uh, they tend to like outdoor sports uh, more than those in the north. They go hunting and fishing. And so, well, does every Southerner? No. Right. So we could do we could do a whole list. I could say all the things that are associated with the South. They listen to country music. Whatever. And you could always find exceptions for it. What is a Southerner at the end of the day? It's organic. I can't give you like an abstract list. Like here's the comprehensive definition for what a Southerner is. But I know it when I see it. And you do too. You know it when you see it. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's something that's recognizable more by experience then then you can study it all day but it's it's something that you more have to feel tangibly and i think that's the same way with um national distinctions to some extent there are there are some things that maybe are firm like in saudi arabia you know islam is the religion you practice islam so, some countries uh, actually you have to be a member of a certain church or religion and I mean, you had to pay taxes to certain churches at the beginning of our country in many regions. But it's something that's it forms organically over time as you have experiences living among a people and then you rub off on each other. And it's kind of a beautiful thing, actually. And it, it's it's hard for me to quantify beyond that. But since I like talking about this stuff, I'm probably taking too long. We got to land the plane on Virgil's article here because I, I had to rush through the next one. But um <clears throat> I don't think George Washington would be an ethno-nationalist. And because, you know, Wolf's whole definition of ethnicity is that uh, it is very similar to Washington's in that both of them acknowledge that there is this lineage component. You can be it by birth, but they, they're also saying that that's not, you can't reduce it to that. That's not, the, the reason, the, the birth part of it is important mostly because of what it, where you got your start the identity, I guess the identity conferring it can give to you. They don't say this. I'm just saying this. Uh, the, you look in the mirror, you see your ancestors, that kind of thing. But but it it raises you among these habits, among this people. That's what Washington's saying. When you're born into it, when born into America, you have these habits. You have these traditions, language, custom, religion. You have these things from a young age. So that it's the default setting. It's the default setting. That's what Stephen Wolf is saying too. Um, does Wolf recognize the problems that this Voltgeist movement has? It, it's it's just, you know, I, I just hope I hope we can have a better, more reasonable talk about this because because to to do that to like just connect it to Nazism somehow, 
Like I said, that's a left-leaning critique. The right wasn't making these critiques until recently. Um, when they started saying, well, the Democrats are the real racists and the Democrats are the real Nazis. And like, that's when we started doing this kind of thing. Uh, it's just, it's not a good critique. All right. In, in my opinion, in my opinion, um, which way Western man? Okay. So he, he closes the whole thing with this. Wolf, Wolf says, uh, I fully acknowledge my goal is to reinvigorate Christendom in the West. That is my chief aim. And the question for most of my audience is, which way Western man? The suicide of the West or its revitalization? So Virgil Walker wants to point out that apparently that phrase, which way Western man, was written by white nationalist William Gailey Simpson. Now, I looked this up. It's the title of a book. And I don't know much about William Gailey Simpson. I'm just going to give the benefit of the doubt here. Let's say he's the worst kind of white nationalist you could possibly imagine. And he's a supremacist to boot. Um, that's the title of his book. There, there's like, like think of Richard Weaver's book, Ideas Have Consequences. How many people have quoted Ideas Have Consequences without reading the book? They just say, hey, it's a great phrase. And it entered the public discourse. If you go on Twitter and type this in, which way Western man, there's all kinds of people using it. Which way Western man? It's in memes. It's in, I don't think most people are even conscious of that. Now, maybe Stephen is, and I don't know this, but I, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, I think I've like, I've heard that term from friends and stuff. I don't know if I've used it, but I might've. And I certainly didn't know who William Gailey Simpson was. So, I just I see that as a bit just uh, he says Wolf distanced himself from the white nationalist dog whistle in the footnote. So so from the white nationalist dog whistle. So I guess this is a white nationalist dog whistle, according to Virgil. I just don't think that's helpful uh, with this with with his white male audience in view with his white male audience. That's the only I don't think Wolf would see it that way. That's the only people he's talking to. But with his white male audience in view, Wolf builds out his homogenous ethnocentric nation. By the way, Wolf Wolf wants this book to go to places like Nigeria. He'd love it if African nations were to use this. So this is just, this is where I, I, I find um, th this frustrating. Conclusion, as an Air Force veteran, I have raised my right hand and sworn to protect and defend the United States Constitution. I'm familiar with patriotism and national pride, despite all its current faults. So so he, he channels a lot of this, um, this Americana stuff that I'm not demeaning it, by the way, I'm, I'm very, you know, I appreciate, uh, uh, Virgil Walker's service there. Um, but, but this, this definitely does, um, this, this plays to our own attachment, our national attachment. And it, it's an attachment that I was raised with too, where you, you salute the flag when it's going down the street. And, and I, and I believe in respecting that. I believe in respecting veterans. Believe me, I do. Uh, I've, it's one of the, the things that's very near and dear to me, but, um, it's, it, what he's saying here though, is, is he's setting up kind of like a comparison or a contrast that here he is, he's about patriotism and national pride, but that's not who Wolf is. Wolf isn't doing that. Um, and then he goes and he says, the weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy ideological strongholds. Current answers, notwithstanding, I'll stick to what works. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ and well-equipped believers living out their faith in the public square. I do want to point out that the concerns here that this would override the Constitution or this would uh, stop free speech or this would stop the American experiment or any of that, which you find in this piece. Uh, I, why can't this critique apply to to that? Why can't Nathaniel Jolly's piece apply to this? In other words, why can't if, if we're just if the gospel is enough, if it's just the gospel, then why should we care about the constitution? In other words, pastors who are very concerned right now about Christian nationalism, we got to put out all this. We got to stomp out that fire. We got to put some water on it. 
those pastors and, and ministry leaders who are doing this, if they keep having a refrain of it's, it's the gospel, it's not politics. Why are they so concerned about Christian nationalism? Yeah, they seem awfully concerned with politics, awfully concerned with the Constitution, awfully concerned with all these things that then in the next breath, it's like it, it, we're not supposed to be, I guess, as concerned with. So is it, it, it's like that, uh, I guess, that, that basic kind of liberal framework or principal pluralist framework or whatever you want to call it, that classical liberal framework is supposed to be, that's okay. You can have that with the gospel, but you can't have Christian nationalism with the gospel. I'm confused by that. And that's one of the questions I hope gets answered uh, at some point. All right, we're going to skim through this last one. I hope that was helpful. And then I'll look at comments uh, that or questions. If you do ask a question, please put a question mark at the end. The mixed blessing of a Christian nation. This one's actually a little longer, but I'm not going to read all of it. Um, cause, cause most of this, like he talks, he gives a basic history. I'm not sure I agree with all of it, but you know, that that's not really the point. Um, here's his, his objections. So we're right at the end. Let me be quick to answer some natural objections. I'm not saying that Christians should not stay. They, they should stay out of the public sphere. Well, that's good. We regenerate Christians ought to live out our biblical values in every sphere of life, promoting righteousness for the good of our fellow man. Okay. That's good. I, I mean, I, so what's the disagreement, right? Like Israel in exile, we ought to seek the welfare of the city. Nor am I saying that it doesn't matter how Christian votes. A common objection is often something like, well, if you don't support Christian nationalism, what kind of nationalism? Pagan nationalism? Well, of course not. We ought to grieve over drag queen story hour, gay marriage. Okay, so we're so far, we're on the same page. But we do all of this as Christians in exile. Here it is. We do all of this as Christians in exile, expecting that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. We shouldn't desire a persecution, but we should expect it recognizing that actually a persecuted church is often much more pure. And this is, uh, but we don't, we don't yearn for persecution. We don't, I, I don't think Scott, it just, it just, he's not saying that, but um, look, if you're even pre-millennial, it could be another thousand years before Christ comes back. What are you going to do? You could be post-millennial, same thing. Like, you don't know the time. You don't know when it's all going to play out. So right now, we're supposed to be good stewards of what God's given us here, which means applying right ethics. This is an ethical issue. This isn't an eschatological issue. That's I believe that. I I think many um, make this an eschatology issue. I don't think it needs to be, though. I don't think it ever sh should be. Now, there are people, though, that maybe that are pre-millennial that end up taking this posture. And it, it ought not to be. And, and I pointed to this before. In my lifetime, probably the two biggest names to mobilize Christians in the political sphere were Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, both premillennial. So you don't have to be a defeatist like this. Um, or, well, it, do I want to? I don't want to call Scott a defeatist, but you, you don't have to be like creating this contrast between pursuing political solutions and waiting for Jesus to come back. Like, again, it's both. The problem is that many Christians today are unwilling to be content with the tensions that God has ordained. We long for Christ's kingdom on earth. That is a good longing. Yeah, but Stephen makes clear that's not what he's talking about in his book. I should probably have the quote in front of me. I don't have it, but um, I took a lot of notes on his book. I was really trying to understand it. Stephen goes through this. In fact, Stephen makes a similar critique. Uh, we ought to pursue the moral blessings of Christ's kingdom in our homes and in our churches, but God has not promised the blessings of Christ's kingdom for nations of unregenerate people. No one's saying that, though. Those blessings will come when Jesus comes again and takes dominion over all, even uh, when every knee will bow to him. 
Okay, so this is kind of this is like shadow boxing. Like he's arguing against some something that no one serious that has a following is actually saying. That's the best I can do with this. That's what it seems like. Okay, I'm willing to be corrected. And you know, Scott was the one that I reached out to. So you know, I would love to to have more of a dialogue on this. Uh, or maybe since Scott can come on the program and talk with Steven. I think that'd be awesome. Um, if anyone knows Scott who's out there listening, please let him know that, that, you know, I'm, I'm still open for that. I'm still open. My invitation stands to be on the podcast. Um, that that's the last article from G3. Now we're going to talk about the statement on Christian nationalism. Let's look at some of the comments first though. We've been streaming for a while now. It's been an hour and 20 minutes. This is one of my longer podcasts, isn't it? Uh, a lot of uh, comments. Would Christian federalism be a better term? Um, yeah, I've thought of that. You know, the problem though, is I think one of those one of those uh, really lefty guys took that term already, which it's just so clown world. I, I, like <laughs> someone who's for a bigger national government took the term Christian federalism to contrast it with Christian nationalism. So the terms are just flying all over the place. Um, okay. I don't know what this, why not go with Native Americans history? I don't know what that means, James. James, you know, you, James, you're you're uh, I don't you're not a Christian, but you come on this podcast a lot. Which uh, I just want you to know, I'm praying for you, brother. Yeah, you're not a Christian. Jesus will not come back. Well, I'm praying for you, brother. He will come back, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And you need to repent and put your trust in him, or face the consequences. Uh, and I wouldn't. I love you, man, and wouldn't want to see that. All right, <laughs> Christian. Hey, what about Christian Fettermanism? Christian Fettermanism. Okay. I don't know what that means. It's like John Fetterman. Am I, am I missing something that I should know about? doesn't matter what term you use. They will slander you and accuse you of hiding your true beliefs, which only they know. That is a hundred percent true. It doesn't matter. G3 is going to be accused of Christian nationalism. If you go to, I think Wikipedia, someone was pointing out to me, Michael O'Fallon, who's been one of the biggest critics of Christian nationalism is called a Christian nationalist. It, it's just, they're going to do it anyway. That is true. Uh, there is, yes, we, we are, we, there is nothing in the new Testament about governing a nation. Well, that's not exactly true. We, we, we do have verses about the role of government, but it's not instructions to government. It's instructions to believers and how they function under government because they're epistles to churches. That's why. And that's why we have, we have a whole old Testament that gives us a template for government. So why would we need, uh, in why, why would we, we need another template? Okay. Um, all right. Let's let's continue this, and we're going to do so by reading. I don't know if we'll read all of it, but we'll go through some of this, some key sections. This came out this morning, the statement on Christian uh, nationalism in the gospel, and it's a draft version. And um, I, I don't want to get into the font controversy, but I just will let everyone know if you're not on Twitter. Apparently, this created a big deal because Josh Bice was concerned the font matched the same font used for the statement on social justice in the gospel. And I, it's, I, I don't, maybe he said something about the content now, but he wasn't this, this morning. When last I checked, there was nothing about the content of it. It was just the font. Um, so I, I'm not going to take a position on the font because I don't really care. But, um, but that is a controversy. That apparently we're getting down to, you know, the real things that matter there, fonts. So this is the uh, statement itself. And it says definition. So you ready? 
people have asked me, what's the definition for Christian nationalism? And no matter how many times I we talk about Stevens, it, it does it, it's not concrete enough. So here's a definition for you. Christian nationalism is a set of governing principles rooted in scripture's teachings on Christ's rule as supreme Lord and King of all creation, who has ordained civil magistrates with delegated authority to be under him over the people to order their ordained jurisdiction by punishing evil and promoting good for his glory and the common good of the nation. Is that acceptable? Is that broad enough? I mean, I could sign on with that. I, I would hope, look, could the G3 guys, even if they don't like the term, cause I don't, I don't particularly care for the term either, but could we sign on with that? Whatever that is, that sounds good, right? I, I would hope any Christian could. Introduction. While Christian nationalism is primarily concerned with the righteous rule of the civil magistrate, Christian nationalism is not just for magistrates. Just as submitting to Christ's lordship is not just for magistrates, but for all people. After the Lord Jesus declared his sovereign authority, he gives a great commission and commands his followers, empowered by his everlasting presence, to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Our Lord did not exclude all civil authorities devoted allegiance to him. Now, this is a great way to put it. Great job. Because, you know, I've heard people try to make this a debate over do we disciple nations or individuals within nations? It doesn't matter. If you're discipling individuals within nations, you think some of them are kings? Yeah. <laughs> what are they going to do? We recognize the existence of other definitions of Christian nationalism. We certainly do not endorse every iteration. Good. Uh, and explicitly repudiate some such forms. You may sign this document and delineate if, you're if you affirm civil authorities, legislating both tables of the law or only the second table after the article. Wow, that's pretty broad. So you could be just about the second half of the Ten Commandments or, or loving. You, you could just say it's, it's the verses on loving neighbor, not loving God that you apply or both. Oh, and, and here are the authors, James Silberman, Dusty Devers, uh, and then contributing editors, William Wolf, Joel Webb, Jeff Wright, Corey Anderson, Ben Woodring. So James Silberman and Dusty Devers, you guys, you know, good job in trying to clarify something. And even if you don't agree with this statement completely, they're trying to clarify. I, I love that. I love the clarity. We need it. Affirmations and denial. And I'm going to skim through this. Uh, source of truth. It's Orthodox, guys. It's the Bible. Um, but they, they actually they do a good job. Uh, let's see. What does it say? We affirm that the Bible is uh, perspicuous in all essential manners. We deny that true beliefs, good character, good conduct can be dictated by any authority other than God's revelation. That's a great way to put it. So they're not falling into the everything has everything comes from special revelation. They're recognizing God's revelation, both natural and special here. Uh, they affirm the, the, the creeds. Uh, they have a standard for justice. Uh, we uh, deny that there is any objective standard by which to discern justice from injustice outside of God's revelation written on our hearts and most perfected, perfectedly revealed in Scripture. Perfectly revealed, sorry. Definition of a nation. And the, here's a, a part that I might quibble a little bit with just in how they phrased it. But this is pushing the needle in the right direction. We affirm that a nation is not merely an idea, an abstract principle or ideology, but tangibly defined by a particular people in a particular place. Amen. We affirm that a particular people are that, like, just think about it if you did this with family. Or, or your, 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 you know, the, the church, not the universal church, but your, your local church. Think of, think if you did this, like, it's just an idea. Family's just an idea. It's, it's the idea of, of togetherness, but it's, it's, but it's the idea of togetherness, but it's, it's not a tangible, actual family. So no, this is great. 
We affirm that a particular people are necessarily bound together by both a shared culture and history and may be comprised of multiple ethnicities while sharing common interests, virtues, languages, and worship. Now, here's here's the thing. When it says multiple ethnicities, right, Stephen had a specific definition of, of ethnicity. I'm not sure exactly what their definition is. They're probably thinking biology here, genetics. So um, if, if that's what they're thinking, and this, this probably has to be tightened or could be tightened up. This is just a draft version, so this can be tightened up. But um, language that would make it clear that the way nations work, biblically speaking, is there's fathers of nations, there's lineage involved. People call this natural relationships. That's, that's, a, that's a, a nation. You know, Jesus, when he came to this world, right, he had to be in certain lines. He had to be born of a certain line in order to be the heir to the throne of David. Um, it, it, genetics were important in that. They, they, they're not inconsequential. They mean something. And, the, you know, the people who, like Virgil Walker, who thinks if you, if you believe what Stephen does, that leads you towards like a Nazi-esque idea. What about the Jewish state? Would you would you say that about modern Israel? Like, what is modern Israel? It's a place, but it's a people, and that people, like, they're they're very rigid on it. Like, I, I mean, I asked once. I remember someone. I'm like, hey, you know, could I get in on that deal to go to Israel? Uh, I forget what they call that. For if you're ethnically Jew, you can go to Israel. There's like a, a foundation, and if I'm not ethnically Jew, I can't. It's just, and it, that's not fair. I can't. No, it is. It is fair. I'm not an Israelite. I'm not Jewish, but. Jewish people in the United States who've never seen Israel can can have access to those privileges. So it's so you'd have to be really upset about that if you were angry about or if, if you thought what Stephen I mean, that's really Stephen is much more mild compared to that. Um, but OK, so all, back to my point, though, um, all I was trying to I'm trying to say is that um, lineage is part of this. Now, does that mean, though, that people who are not in a, a particular lineage they don't have they don't share um well i guess everyone does share adam right we all or noah we all share but uh specifically the divisions made at babel and the changes that have happened since then if you have someone as different as let's say from china genetically their parents uh, are from that part of the world that may be where they started life um or or maybe not maybe maybe um they lived in the United States, they're born here, but uh, genetically their ancestors came from China or something, right? Uh, and I say here, United States, that's where I'm recording from. Would they then not be Americans? Well, they would. But again, remember the nation, I don't think America is necessarily a nation, but would they, I live in New York right now, would they not be New Yorkers? Well, they would be New Yorkers. Uh, they're, they're born into this community and there, there are certain habits and traditions and things that come with being a New Yorker. Now it's, it's kind of fractured and we're kind of like we're falling apart at the seams. So is the glue enough? It's not. But but they would whatever that baseline is, they would be that. But what what is that? Well, it, it's a process that has taken place over the course of generations of adoption. We call it assimilation on the in, in this on this scale. On a smaller scale, we call it adoption in a family. But on, in, the, in a nation, it's called assimilation. People whose ancestors aren't from there who didn't who weren't here when the constitution was drafted, which was for ourselves in our posterity, as I pointed out before, a narrow group of people, they can be grafted into it, but it, it takes a process. It doesn't just happen automatically. In fact, even to be part of the American empire, you have to take citizenship classes, 
right? There, there's a base. That's why the illegal immigration thing is such a big deal. You let people in here without any kind of assimilation. They don't share the the, the baseline things that you need um, to have that that glue that uh, helps us stick together for national defense and to build trust for business relationships and, and all of that. So, um, so, so I would maybe fine tune it if I were writing this and they might, you know, whether they'll take this suggestion or not, I don't know, but, um, somehow find language that can communicate, uh, that, um, a, a nation is, is associated with a particular ethnicity or ethnicities, I suppose you could say, uh, but it's a particular people, um, but others, foreigners, sojourners, they can be grafted in, they can be assimilated, right? That, that would be the way that I would look at that. And I'm trying my best to do so biblically. Okay. So if anyone has a disagreement with that, I would just challenge you, um, show me biblically and I'll change my position, but I'm trying my best to grapple with these things according to what the Bible says or what it assumes. All right. Thus, we affirm that nations should rightly maintain autonomous governments and sovereign control of their people in place with the necessary rights and duties to prioritize the safety, prosperity and well-being of their defined limited national citizenry first and foremost before seeking the good of non-citizens and the global population. Uh, secure their borders, punish evil within their sovereign territory and establish a necessary defense against potential foreign adversaries. Amen. Now, that's great. This is this is a really good, well thought out um, statement. Uh, many of the things here. Um, it says, we further deny uh, that sovereign nations must be composed of mono-ethnic populations to be united under God. Therefore, as Christian nationalists, we utterly repudiate sinful ethnic partiality in all its various forms. Now, this this section, may this may be a sticky point for some people just because it's not defined uh, exhaustively what sinful ethnic partiality is, but I think it's a great line rather than racism. Okay, think of the alternative that's used in every statement we've heard, even even I think the statement on social. No, no, no. Maybe the statement on social justice used uh, ethnic partiality, if I'm not mistaken. Now, now I'm questioning myself, but like every other like all the woke statements, right? They all racism, right? That words died a thousand deaths. So they're using sinful ethnic partiality. I think that's more biblical. Uh, when, once you bring distinctions into the church, uh, like the Bidiana Builes tried to do with race uh that that don't belong there doesn't mean that you can't have like a korean church or something but you bring those into the church as if um others are excluded on purpose they're not allowed to come they're not allowed to be part of the body you have a problem you uh if if, if you're giving the impression uh, who was it was it anthony bradley I think anthony bradley was the one who's like wondering if white evangelicals have ever been saved it was a few years ago <laughs> I wonder if they've ever actually been saved. Like they're they're not even Christians, um, because, and you have to use the term white, and you know that that's the the problem. That's uh, an issue that uh, needs to be. That's ethnic partiality. That'd be sin. That'd be a good example of sinful ethnic partiality. But um, that'd probably have to be parsed out more to satisfy some people, possibly. And I'm I'm not the best person to figure that all out right now. But but I I do want to say props to them though for using that term instead of racism. I think that's great. Um, they talk about the nature of Christ's lordship and kingdom. Uh, we affirm that. I'm, I'm just reading parts of this. I'm not reading the whole thing. We affirm that in addition to possessing the titles of Savior, Messiah, and many others, Jesus, the Son of God, who is truly God, is also King of, of all earthly kings, Lord of all earthly lords, and the lawmaker for all earthly lawmakers. He's the possessor of all authority in heaven and on earth. We affirm that as God, 
Jesus Christ is preeminent over all creation. Yeah, absolutely. We deny any theology which would seek to segregate aspects of life where God's word is authoritative. I love that line, where God's word is authoritative. Absolutely. Where God says you're supposed to do this, you have a responsibility, you better do it. And supposedly, secular aspects of life, where the Christian must operate by a standard other than God's word. Now, well, I don't want to go on this track. I, I, I would say I'm in general agreement with that. We deny any theology which claims that bringing God's word into the civil sphere is unwise, unfruitful, sinful, or anything other than fitting and required. Amen. So, yeah, the lordship of Christ extends, guess what? Over government, government's ethical, Bible speaks about ethics. The identity of civil officers and the source of their authority. So I'm just going to summarize for you. Civil officers get their authority from God. Uh, they also have a duty. God defines what it is. Uh, it's to punish evil. It's to promote good. Uh, that's the purpose of civil government. Uh, it talks about sphere sovereignty. How there's we, we talked about this a little earlier. You have church, you have family, you have uh, government, different roles. Um, on nationalism and policy priorities, we affirm that nations possess an inviolable right to establish justice and safeguard the peace and prosperity of their own citizens in the face of unjust international pressures. We affirm that specific short-term priorities of Christian nationalism in the context of the United States are repentance and faith, which lead to the abolition of abortion, the defeat of the LGBTQ plus agendas, various insanities and coercion, placing parents in control of education, caring for widows and orphans, and de-weaponizing the federal and state bureaucracies, which target Christians for censorship and persecution, securing our borders, recapturing our national sovereignty from godless global entities who present a grave threat to civilization like the United States, the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, etc., and exercising far more restraint in American international military intervention and adventurism in overseas democracy building. And they put it in quotes. We affirm that different forms of government can achieve just laws, and we do not seek to coerce nations into one particular form of government. Man, like, where do I sign? That's this is like I don't even know what to say. This is exactly what I've wanted to hear evangelical leaders saying for a long time. Clearly, is exactly it. And I just I, I love this. I don't know what else to say. This is so good. We deny that seeking to maintain and assert national sovereignty against wicked global elitists has anything to do with dislike for any particular race or nation. Amen. Yes. We deny that the sin of racism has any place in the church of Jesus Christ or in a nation. Now, see, there's there's where you see, I, I don't know if uh, maybe the ethnic partiality language wasn't transferred. Probably better to use that term because. Even if it still needs to be defined more, it's it's better, it's easier to define that than it is racism at this point. Uh, but anyway, uh, Christian nation would be impartial in judgment. All right, big picture agenda. We affirm that the Christian nationalist project entails national recognition of essential Christian orthodoxy as a Christian consensus under Jesus Christ, the Supreme Lord and King of all creation. It goes on there on vocation and calling of Christ. This is extensive. On the Great Commission, we affirm that Christ's commissioning is church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that he commanded includes civil authorities to be called to repentance, faith and obedience to Christ. Uh, the church is to instruct civil authorities regarding their identity and duties as rulers. Amen. That's not, by the way, that's not integralism. <laughs> I know some might think that is, that's not, that's not the Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic concept of integralism is that the, uh, the Catholic church, and it, it's unique to the Catholic church, um, possesses a spiritual authority over civil rulers 
in, in the civil realm that allows them under certain conditions to make uh, it actually blurs the lines where they're able to make decisions that we would say as Protestants are unique to the civil magistrate. That's not what's happening here. Instructing a ruler, that's like instructing a parent with how to raise kids, instructing a ruler with how to raise a nation or not raise, but <laughs> rule a nation. That's that is in the purview of the church. Uses of the law. We affirm and apply the general equity of the Ten Commandments to the nation's laws. That's good. Uh, let's keep going here. On the distinction between law and gospel, I'm so glad they included this. We affirm that the content of the gospel is the good news of God acting in the person and work of Jesus Christ to reconcile sinners. Uh, it keeps going. Let's see. Um, we affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We affirm that God gave Adam a law. Uh, we affirm that good works done by Christians in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidence of a true and lively faith. We affirm that living in a Christian nation oriented toward the true and eternal provides cultural conditions conductive to the spread of the gospel for salvation. Uh, let's see. We deny that the content of the gospel includes obedience to the law. Okay. Amen. Amen. That's one of the, the things that um, is a pitfall often for I've just noticed this in, in some of the post-millennial reconstructionist type camps, and they've avoided that pitfall right here. And I, I'm not saying these guys are even that, but uh, that's not going to be a problem. Okay, on civil disobedience, we don't have time for all of this. Methodology, just war, Mago Day, and equal protection, uh, neutrality, and the separation of church and state. All good stuff. Um, so... I would just, you know, encourage you. This is the draft, but check it out. There's a contact form at the bottom if you want to know more. But it's a statement on christiannationalism.com. Someone's trying to clar clarify things, and I'm grateful for that. All right, to the comments now. Uh, I haven't read all these. A lot of this has to do with G3 and others who criticize this being unwilling to question presuppositions they grew up with. I think I know what you mean by that. Um Romanist, they are not the Catholic Church because the true church is the only Catholic Church from which they cut themselves off. Council of Trent, Canon 9. Uh, true, yeah. I guess we're all Catholics in the universal sense, right? Hungarians and Serbians are not like Scottish people. Now, I'll have you know. Yeah, that's true. I mean, look, hey, I'm, I'm descended from Scottish people, and I'm not even like Scottish people because I've been here too many generations. G3 trying to claim the color blue in a font is hilarious. Okay. Well, uh, whining about Catholics is not fruitful. Well, I wasn't trying to whine about Catholics. I was trying to make a distinction just because uh, the, the integralism claim keeps coming up that you guys are just integralists. And like, no, 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 we're not. And Christian nationals aren't. Scott, yes, uh, definitely not globalists. Oh, Tim, that's Tim. Tim Bushong. Yeah. Hey, by the way. Uh, man, I don't have it up in front of me. I'm going to be speaking at the Jesus and Politics Conference. And let me let me uh, just say this. Oh, wait. Okay, one more question, and then I'll say what I'm going to say. John, is one generation enough to make some part of a nation, even a state in the U.S.? That's a really, really good question. So, all right. So, so th th this is actually a, like a deep thought here. Scenario. You came over the border, and you did it the right way. And you're 20 years old and you take a class are you an american yeah i mean you took the class you're part of the i would say you're part of the american empire um are you part of the american nation well that i'm, I'm just gonna tell you i guess what i how i approach this because i it's 
it's probably going to be different than Steven and it might be different than others, but um, I happen to think there's probably at the minimum five or six nations within the United States, broadly speaking, that would match, I think, biblically what you see a nation as being. Now, over time, this has taken place. Albion Seed, written by David Hackett Fisher, is a book where he talks about these different immigrant groups coming from, from Great Britain, from England, and where they went, where they settled, what communities they formed, and how they're different than one another. So you could say that there were multiple nations possibly already forming or some of them may be formed at the beginning of this country you had dutch in new york you had puritans which are a different part of england uh, in the northeast you had in the south a mixture of scots irish with um with, with cavaliers so different different part of england than the puritans were from you had uh you had some Germans and some French Huguenots, and there were even some Jewish people, uh, mainly in the South. Um, Huguenots and, and Germans were, uh, you, you call it, you think about like the Pennsylvania Dutch. Well, it was the Deutsch, they're German, right? So you, you have all these groups. And then, and then since then, they've, there's been other groups that have come over. You have like in the Midwest, a lot of people from Germany, uh, a lot of people from um, Dutch people. You have... Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, I think there's a lot of Dutch. There's so it really just depends where you are. The Southwest, there's a lot of uh, people that are um, uh, the descendants of those who came from Spain and uh, intermarried with the natives who are the people who are here already. So this is all complicated in a scenario like this. It's not. It's not as smooth. Uh, you know, when God told the children of Israel to go into the land of Canaan. He gave specific places, even for tribes, not just the nation, but the tribes in the nation, specific lands that would revert back. Uh, I mean, it was it was very orderly. We, we just don't have that. And that's OK. But um, but I think it does create confusion. And I think it has created friction in places like I just talked about uh, in St. Paul, where you have. And in like Dearborn, Michigan, where you have these big populations from the Middle East who have come in and settled there. And that tends to be what happens. People who are similar to each other tend to live around one another. It's just natural. It's just how it works. Uh, and so what happens to the people who are there before them? Well, when they grow to a certain size, they're outvoted and stuff. So, all right. So I'm, I'm taking a long time to answer this, but I feel like I have to lay that groundwork because it's so easy to just say, we're all Americans. We're all Americans. Right, right. We're all part of this American empire. Um we we though do we are part of i think different we we are we are members i think of different people groups though within this empire and so for me i'll, I'll use myself as an example first and then i'll take the example of the person who just came across the border my family has been here since the beginning i mean i have family that came over on the mayflower i have family who came as indentured servants in virginia i have all different lines going all kinds of different places and I got Puritans and Cavaliers and ev everyone, you know, people who fought in the Revolutionary War. I'm related to presidents. I'm related. So um, you could say that, like, I, I have a, a big stake in, in this country because I my family's been here a long time. And that does mean something, by the way. That, that's meaningful. 
having tracing back like that. If I had just come across the border and was um, assimilating into the United States, I would have a rich heritage, but it would also be somewhere else. A lot of Jewish people I know who live here, they have a rich heritage, but they also have this homeland of Israel in their minds. So, um, so, so you can have that. And, uh, and so for me, I am very rooted here, but, but I've moved around a lot. I was born in California. My one side of my family, my mom's side's from Ohio. My dad's side, his father's from Mississippi. Uh, I grew up though in, in upstate New York. I lived down South for four years. Well, you know, what does that mean for me? What am I? What am I? When I, uh, we, we had this discussion around the table the other day, when someone asks you what state you're from, what do you say? And I'm like, huh, I probably I say different things, probably depending on where I am and who I'm talking to. Like I could say I was born in California, was raised in upstate New York. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the South. Most of the, if you do it numerically, most of my family's in the South. Um, I mean, I can, I, I just can't really claim the Pacific Northwest. That's the only region I can't, I wish I could, but, uh, I could claim, you know, I could even try to talk about attachments I had to Ohio, but where am I really? And, and I think that I have, I, I feel at home when I'm in New York, I feel at home when I'm in California in different ways. I feel at home when I'm in Virginia, we were just, I was just in Virginia yesterday. My wife and I were talking about it how uh, in some ways it feels like a home away from home and, and we have a love for it. Those loves form over time with experience. And, and so I think that someone who crosses the border, let's say yesterday, the right way and assimilates, they are on a journey. They are, they are in a process of those experiences happening. And if they're willing and able you know, to assimilate and learn and, uh, honor the traditions and the habits and all of those things, then uh, of where, whatever part of the country they live in, then it, it's different for different people, but they will eventually uh, feel, they, they will be comfortable with it. And, and when you know you're part of, I think, a people um, is when you do feel at home there. Obviously, there's there's rebellious children who want to rebel against their homes and so forth, and they're trying to escape their roots because they're embarrassed of them or so something like that. But uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm I'm saying you know, even for them, there there's there's a nostalgia that some that that will come back to them at later parts in life, um, and I and I think that that nostalgia is a that that's a rootedness. That's a that's the smells and the experiences and the it's just a love of home. That love of home is, I think, what defines your identity as far as where you're rooted more than anything else. And, and if you, this is why I think it's hard for like military people when they're kids and they're moving around all the time, it's, it's very hard to form an identity. Uh, they, they can form an identity in their family and they I mean, there's other things that will, uh, somewhat compensate, I guess for that. But, but I do think rootedness, it, it is an important thing. So, um, so, so that's a long way of answering it. I do think someone can assimilate in a generation. Absolutely. Does that mean they're going to feel about the United States the same way that I do or feel about their region the same way that I do being rooted in, a, in, in it for longer or something? Maybe not. You know, I don't feel as rooted as the Italian New Yorkers that I live around here. I mean, they're rooted in New York longer than I've been in New York. I've been, my family's been in the United States longer, but not in New York. And there is something special about that. And I don't deny that. Am I a New Yorker though? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm paying taxes here. Believe me, New York State has let me know in no uncertain terms that I am a New Yorker. 
and I have an obligation to the government of New York. And, you know, and culturally there are things I do, I'm sure that are New York. Um, so it's all, it's organic. It's not abstract. And, and the best thing to do if, if anyone listening is hung up on any of this and you're just wondering who am I, I got to figure it out. You don't have to figure it out. Uh, just relax, just relax, just be yourself. And you, you were, you were formed and created where God wanted you. You've had the experience he's wanted you to have that create that, that have made you brought you to the place uh, of being the person that you are now. And knowing who your people are, I think is important. That's a better question to ask. Not no, who are my people is a better question than, than what am I? Who are my people will help you answer that first one, right? This is just unsolicited advice from John that I'm just going waxing long, long, long about, I guess. I'm almost two hours in, but, um, but I think this stuff is fascinating. I've been thinking through it more because we, we were in Appalachia over the weekend. So um, th this is where I'm going to talk about my week. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me, everyone. Uh, I, I was uh, visiting my brother. I was, in, I was in Kentucky looking at Ridge Runner stuff and my brother who's in Knoxville area. And we took a drive and we, we, he took me to some local places and where they were smoking meat and where they were, uh, they had like, where, where they had dairy stuff going on. And I bought cheese and, um, and then we went to Nashville for, and at the concert we went to was canceled, but there was a, a really great family, a uh, wonderful guy who, um, allowed my wife and I to stay in his, uh, house. And, uh, so we just relaxed for a day and a half and got some of the best uh, chicken I, I've ever had. Best Nashville hot chicken. It was uh, uh, granddaddy's, granddaddy's hot chicken in, um, in Nashville, if you ever get a chance to go there. And, you know, it, it, was, it was rooted stuff. I mean, you could just tell this community was, uh, loved that chicken. It was one of the commonly shared things that kept the community together, I think. And, we saw some country music, right. Going downtown and seeing all the people playing music there and everything. That's, there's a lot of tradition in country music. And the, the thought, the, the attraction was, was kind of welling up within me in ways that I can't even describe to you to people who I feel a common cause with the people of Appalachia. Now I, don't, I wasn't raised in Appalachia. My wife technically comes from one County over from the most northernmost County in Appalachia. Uh, believe it or not, it extends into New York, but, but I wasn't raised in Appalachia, but I see the, I see the names of the streets. There's a lot of Harris's down there. That's my last name. The people, they look like me. A lot of them, the, am I racist for feeling a kinship? Uh, like, and it's not like everything's about that, but there's a slight like connection I feel because of that. Um, and, and I'm sure, cause I know tracing my family back, you know, I, I know that they came through these areas and I see the plight they're in. I see the poverty. I don't want to help. I want to do something. Uh, I, I feel, you know, Paul talks about feeling a kinship for his people. And so that's the question that I've asked myself is, is who are my people? And, and, and then maybe there's more than one. I mean, ultimately my people, spiritually speaking, is the church. There's no question there. Absolutely no question. And my best friends don't share, you know, could, couldn't be different more genetically from me many of them but but as far as like in this temporal life there's many different connection uh affinities that we have and i think god made it that way and so um so so, so i guess there's bits of pieces of me all, all around the country but i would say i'm i'm a you know 
I feel a kinship with those uh, who um, are from Southern California to some extent, not the crazy liberals, but like the, 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 when I go there, the, the way that people talk, the way that people act and behave, their expressions, that's like my parents. It's like me. I relate to it. Um, in New York, though, hey, I relate to some of the cuisine here. I relate to the, uh, the energy here, uh, the, um, the Puritan work ethic thing. I, I relate to that. I was raised in that, right? So, so there's, it's a blessing. And that's, and that's, I think, the answer that a lot of Americans are going to come to, which is why it's hard, I think, for some to conceive of America as not being a nation because we're, we moved around so much. But, um, but if you broadly look at things, there are geographical areas that have certain distinctions. Voting patterns, one of the biggest indicators of this. And so if I was going to be around people that were the most similar to me, with which I had the most in common, the people who I would say are probably my people, I probably, I mean, I'd probably be living somewhere in between Virginia and Mississippi, right? I'd probably be living down there or maybe, you know, out in, I don't know out in the West somewhere, out in Idaho or something. Um, and this is, this is one of the things that we've had to uh, keep in mind as we've been looking for places to potentially move after we leave New York, because at some point I'm going to have to, uh, just because of the way it is uh, politically here. So that's a long, 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 long way to try to answer that. But I, I just have a heart for a lot of uh, young men, especially out there, who are having identity issues. And I understand why. Uh, a lot of this stuff factors into it, moving around, not you know if you have a you're part of a country that's just an idea like what is that um people that have broken families i mean there's so many things that play into this and this this whole discussion makes it even more confusing i think of christian nationalism and and how does my faith intersect with my identity my culture um politics all of that right and and so um i i just want to say i respect the people who are putting the statement together on christian nationalism they're trying to approach the questions that need to be asked and um, rather than assuming everything that we've just grown up with, which I think has been a lie for a while about identity and about what kind of, we, we need to get back to some tangibly rooted things. It's going to provide more stability. We're going to when, when you're connected to an area and to a people, you treat them with more respect. So th that's my three and a half cents there for this uh, two hour podcast. Don't forget. Um, we're having another live stream tonight and I understand if many of you can't join for that, maybe you can listen later because we've already been podcasting here for a while, but, uh, th th this was supposed to be a preview of that. So tonight is the uh, discussion with A.D. Robles and William Wolf, and we'll see who else comes on to talk about this issue of, uh, G3 and Christian nationalism some more. And, uh, we're going to, we're going to get into some more details on some of the tweets and some, all of that. And, um, and, and so be looking, uh, forward to that. I identify as a Christ follower, says Kat. I do too. That is my primary, primary identity is in Christ Jesus. Um, we have a lot of different, uh, identities God has given to us though. Thank him for that. All right. Um, yep. Lot, man, lots of comments coming in. This is, do, do you guys like this? By the way, anyone, I'm going to, I'm just going to close the podcast here, but, but I would like to just say one throw one final thing out there do you all like this i mean me I, i'm i feel like i'm just rambling about stuff i've been thinking about that i don't have complete answers to but I, I i feel like it needs to be talked about it's long form conversation or discussion or whatever uh monologue i guess but but is this helpful to you i hope this is 
you know, because if, it, if it's not, I'm not going to do it anymore. <laughs> uh, I'll just do interviews with people or I'll just present slideshows. But like, I don't know. Um, I, I feel like this is helpful to work through some of these issues and, and to help each other as iron sharpens iron, hopefully. God bless. Uh, more coming. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.